What I think is necessary today is a sense of urgency from the Pentagon. And I have not seen that yet. I have not seen uh, Secretary Austin or General Milley really express this as the threat of our lifetime to really make this an all hands on deck call, because I do think that we are at that moment. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Congress is back from its spring recess and dived into hearings on the fiscal 2024 defense budget request. We'll tackle the big questions with Representative Rob Whitman, chairman of the Airland Subcommittee of the House Armed Services Committee. And we'll take a look at the week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Well, let's start with a couple of updates to items we discussed last week. Of course, our top story then was that the Government Accountability Office had denied Lockheed Martin's protest of the award of the future long-range assault aircraft contract to Bell. Vago, you were wondering whether Lockheed Martin would take it to court. Well, they have decided not to take further legal action to contest that award, so the program will go forward. We also mentioned last week that Boeing had found a fix for ejection seat issues on the T-7 Red Hawk trainer. However, the time spent on that and some supply chain issues mean that the Red Hawk won't be ready for a low-rate initial production decision until February 2025. As we previously noted on this broadcast, the FY24 budget zeroed out procurement funds for the T-7 this year, since you can't procure without a production decision. We'll be talking with Congressman Rob Whitman a little later, but one thing Congress is always interested in, basing decisions and whose district benefits. The U.S. Air Force has announced basing for two squadrons of F-15EXs and one of F-35s, Fresno Air National Guard Base in California and Naval Air Station Joint Reserve Base New Orleans, or NAS-JURBNO, in Louisiana, will get 18 Eagle Twos each. Barnes Air National Guard Base in western Massachusetts, just north of Mass Pike, will host 18 Lightnings. All of these aircraft replace F-15Cs and Ds. A number of news sources have hyperventilated about the British Ministry of Defense awarding BAE Systems a contract extension worth £656 million for the Tempest 6th generation fighter this week. Don't get too excited. This is the scheduled release of an expected tranche of research funds, which is to say, an installment payment paid on time. Had they announced orders or a fleet goal, that would have been much more worthy of comment. Oh, and looking into the air power crystal ball, next Thursday, April 27th, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments will release a new paper on restructuring the United States Air Force and getting away from some of the traditional roles and missions assigned to certain platforms. I will be moderating that rollout, and don't be too surprised if you hear it discussed right here on next week's Air Power podcast. In fact, I think we can let loose a little secret. Next week is going to be wall-to-wall B-21 here on the podcast. Bago? 
I thought that was terrific. And also your Nas Jerbno <laughs> was, uh, sounded as if somebody is playing something slowly and backwards. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you, you managed to do the Ginger Rogers of dictation there. But very quickly, congratulations on uh, the moderating gig. And speaking of moderating, I want to go backwards before we uh, leap uh, forward. You also participated in an event hosted by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Pausing Proliferation, Facing China's Military Engine Development. You were joined by CS, uh, CSIS's uh, Cynthia Cook, uh, who, who leads the Think Tank's Defense Industrial Initiatives Group, uh, and David Stilwell, a retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier General, who served as an Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs during the Trump administration. What were the takeaways from that event, JJ? That was a fascinating event, in part because General Stilwell had also been the military attache in Beijing and had seen the Chinese military up close for an extended period. He really covered the cultural aspects of China, its military, and how they develop systems. I was in there more for the technical parts. But I think one of the significant upshots is that China is advancing very quickly in turbines, in, in part because they put a mark on the wall in the 14th five-year plan and said, this is absolutely essential for us, both commercial and military jet engines. They had been reliant on the Russians or copied Russian designs for too long. They're doing it themselves now. However, they are 25 to 30 years behind the U.S. and most of the West in engine technology. They're looking for ways to catch up quickly. But of course, if the U.S. were to invest in a new generation of aircraft engine technology, it would be a leap ahead and leave the Chinese trying to catch up to where we used to be. So that was just one of the tactical implications or suggestions that came out of that discussion. Folks who are interested can find it on YouTube. I was uh, uh, very pleased to hear that uh, there will be no further legal action and uh, FLARA uh, will be getting underway. Obviously, the U.S. Army, everybody very interested in getting the program uh, rolling. And so it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be very interesting to see what the storylines are going to be at the Army Aviation Association of America's uh, big jamboree uh, in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, which uh, we will be covering. Well, it was also interesting to see Lockheed make that decision in part because they still have business before the Army. They are hoping to win the future armed reconnaissance aircraft contract that follows on, which is being decided by many of the same people as made this decision. And there may have been an element in their choice not to pursue further legal action of not further stirring a hornet's nest that you're about to have to revisit. Um, and it's going to be interesting, and it's going to be interesting in part because of perceptions that industrial base will be a factor in this, and therefore they stand a better chance, right? I mean, that was always a storyline. Bell wins Flora, uh, Sikorsky uh, wins Fara, although uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out uh, ultimately, and we'll hear a little bit about it, uh, about uh, that uh, from the chairman, uh, hopefully in a little bit. This is the second week where we're talking about basing. Last week, we talked about uh, F-35s on rotational deployment as the active duty, the last active duty F-15Cs uh, in the Air Force uh, are retired from the Pacific. What are some of the trends you're seeing in some of these basing decisions, uh, JJ, as somebody who's, who's watched them for a long time, right? I mean, there's a lot of politics that are involved in this uh, and a lot of member management. Um, what, are, what are we seeing in terms of trends of where some of these airplanes are going? Well, in a way, the most surprising thing is seeing brand new off the production line aircraft going directly to the Air National Guard. For a long time, the Air Force had an allergy about that. They wanted the latest iron 
to be in the active component, and then they would pass their aircraft down to the guard and reserves. But in these decisions that we've just mentioned today, you have brand new aircraft going straight to the Air National Guard to provide depth rather than going first to the active to fill out existing squadrons. And I would point out some of the most experienced uh, aviators uh, and maintainers uh, are in fact in the Guard because many have an active duty background and then they went uh, to the Guard. So they tend to be very experienced and maintain that uh, experience over prolonged periods doing similar sorts of jobs. Going to be certainly interesting to see how the Guard uh, taps and, and unlocks some of the potential of the airplane. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And joining us now is the chair of the Tactical Air Land Forces Subcommittee of the House Armed Services Committee, the distinguished gentleman from Virginia, the Honorable Rob Whitman. Uh, sir, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the program. Vago, great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, a, a real pleasure. And I want to start with sort of the big picture. Uh, you've had the, the first hearing, uh, which was just terrific to see that kind of degree of, of bipartisanship at a time uh, when there was a lot of tension, uh, obviously, in Washington. We're very blessed on this committee to have a great record of bipartisanship, and I am very confident that that will continue under Chairman Rogers' leadership. Um, I, I wanted to start and we wanted to start with getting your sense on the overall uh, budget. There's a lot to like in here in terms of uh, the amount of air power that's being invested in, whether it's in the form of uh, E-7, right, new radar aircraft, the collaborative combat aircraft, uh, next generation air dominance, the Navy moving ahead with the FAXX program. We're going to the E-4B replacement. We have a high, higher F-35 rate. Uh, and on top of that, even some F-15 EXs that is going to be the backbone of the force as we wait, wait for uh, NGAD uh, to come in. Are you happy with what you've seen so far across well, the piece? Listen, I think, I think there's some elements of this to be positive about. One of the things that does concern me is that the services FY23 to 28 plan includes divesting in 801 fighter aircraft but only seeks during that time to buy back 345 new F-15 uh, EXs and the F-35A. So I, I am concerned about that because we are, we are losing capability and capacity and we are not buying back what I believe we need to counter the Chinese tactical aircraft threat. And listen, I understand you know, their aircraft and the, the things that they bring to the table as a fifth gen aircraft, but I, I still believe that we are not doing the right things to recapitalize this. I, I don't have an issue with retiring A-10s and 15 C's and D's, but I'm also realizing that you know you 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 can't replace something with nothing. I understand the limitations of those aircraft, but we have to make sure that we are investing in capability that's available right in the windshield of the of the coming months, not in the, in the coming years, especially instances where a lot of this doesn't happen until outside the, the, the fit up. Those those things concern me. So we need to be looking at all the different aspects. Listen, I am glad that 
There's been some effort to address unmanned platforms. I think we can do more. There's not a clear plan as to how do we how do we bridge that fighter gap? You know, we already have a strike fighter shortfall with the Navy. So how, how do we address this fighter gap based upon this budget request? Well, let's follow up on that question about retirement, sir, because just in the time you've been on the committee uh, observing the Hill, the congressional attitude toward retirement seems to have evolved from hell no to, well, sometimes maybe yes. But what do you think of the overall approach that particularly the Air Force is taking of divesting existing systems to invest in new ones when so often the funds that are freed up get siphoned off for other purposes? JJ, that is such an important aspect because what happens is, is when you when you put the recapitalization way out in the future, many times outside the fit up, you're putting it in the hands of not this service branch chief, the one that serves today, but the one that'll serve in the future. And as you know, the investment or the reinvestment track gets more and more complicated in the future. The the metric of the future value of dollars, you know, a dollar today is going to be not the same dollar as it would be five years from now. So making sure that you have a transition. And listen, you can't recapitalize every bit of the capacity and capability that you put out the door. But those curves have to intersect. The downward edge of the curve on divestment has to intersect with the upward slope of the curve as you recapitalize. If you gap those curves with, you know, four, five years plus, then you never get to the point of recapitalization. And listen, we've seen that. That has happened time and time again in the military. So the question is, is how do we close that gap? How do we have capability now? And I think there are a number of thing, things that we can do. Listen, I know it's, it's long lead time to, to build aircraft. I know it's long lead time to get anywhere close to the next generation air defense system. But I do think there are things that we can do now, especially, especially with unmanned platforms that become force multipliers for our current manned aircraft fleet. And especially with the things we can do with JADC2 and others, those are the places that we need to be going. I, I want to take you to the uh, question of resources. Right now, we don't even know whether there's going to be a debt ceiling deal. Everything is tied to that. Um, obviously, uh, the House Speaker is proposing sort of hard spending caps, which would have defense implications as well. If the services can't uh, divest to invest, what can Congress do to help them out in this in order to sort of keep capabilities? I mean, there are those who argue we're not spending nearly as much money as we need to be reasonably spending. And instead, we're sort of dancing around on the edges. Obviously, the nation has a lot of other concerns it has to invest in as well. But we're also trying to deter uh, China and, and Russia. How do we manage to do this, especially if there's a little bit of, of political discord about what the spending outlook could look like? Sure. Well, listen, Bago, listen, I, I, we're not going to have the spending increases in defense like we've had the last two years. Now, I know the Senate's going to push the issue. So I, I think we, we might get ultimately to a little bit higher number, but not, not the same measures of magnitude that we've had in years past. But there are two things that we need to do that I think can really help us the pace into modernizing uh, all of our service branches. For, first of all, is you know, we have to be very aggressive at finding savings currently within the Pentagon that can be redirected to the programs we know are critical to modernization. And I would argue that there are a lot of areas in the Pentagon that provide significant savings, not, not windfall savings, but significant savings to where we can say, okay, uh, we've tried that, really not performing and do that across the spectrum. And all of a sudden, when you start to get to those programs, it does add up. Again, it's not going to be a windfall, 
but it will be something of substance that we can then redirect those dollars towards the modernization effort. Another thing that we have to do is we have to do everything possible to leverage the incredible amount of private capital that is being invested into technology that has a military application, whether it's dual use or for that matter, sole technology that's applicable to the military. I think there's some things that have started down that road. The Office of Strategic Capital has the potential to do significant amount of that. The Defense Innovation Unit has been moved back up to the Secretary of Defense. They're very adept at going out and finding new technologies and then making sure that we're funding those those new technologies, which do become game changers. And those technologies are developed by the private sector. And last but not least is the AppFit program that Representative Ken Calvert put in place as the Subcommittee on, on Defense Appropriations put that in last year to provide some federal money to scale good technologies that have been relegated to essentially phase two under small business innovation research grants to where they can't take what's great technology and scale it to actually put it in the hands of the warfighters. So I think those three areas are incredibly important. The question is, is can we get those to a place collectively that can have an impact? We have to be very aggressive in thinking about, you know, doing uh, what I call uh, disruptive change. It can't be incremental change. You know, it, this isn't like years past where we say, well, we really don't have a big threat on the radar screen. We can incrementally change things. No, this has to be transformational change. It has to be disruptive change. So I understand those things aren't easy because people go, oh my gosh, you can't do that. But if we really are going to do the things we need to do in the face of what I think is the threat of our lifetime, then we, we can't be satisfied with incremental change. We have to go towards these, these monumental changes that will allow us to provide leverage of dollars in the private sector and technology that's been developed there that's pretty amazing that we can apply in the national defense realm. Just a, a quick follow-up, not to back things up and with JJ's permission. What are some of the things that Congress can do, uh, sir? Because at the end of the day, you know, we have a risk-averse uh, approach to almost everything. Uh, yes. I mean, we're doing a great job in Ukraine, uh, but, you know, obviously I understand balancing uh, risk. And I want to ask you a Ukraine lessons learned question a little deeper in the show. But from your standpoint, what can Congress do to sort of break down these barriers to encourage risk-taking, encourage people to move faster? We are starting to move faster. That's good news. Uh, folks get it. We've heard from Secretary Kendall, who time and again talks about you know the, the speed imperative and CQ Brown, but indeed the other service chiefs as well. What is it Congress can do to sort of help accelerate all of these things, given you know they're so worried about annoying one of you by not putting enough ships in uh, the yard in your state or not enough airplanes in, in the district that it ends up sort of hamstringing the whole process sometimes without blaming you guys? Sure. Well, listen, I I think there have been some changes that have been made um, in recent years. You know, uh, Mac Thornberry was very committed to acquisition reform uh, and Mac did some great work. The problem is, is those things were all, you know, incremental steps. I think I think we have to take significant steps to empower decision makers. I talked to Chairman Rogers about driving down decision making maybe to the PEO level or the joint program office level to, to be able to cancel programs that maybe aren't needed or are not, not performing. I think we have to be able to operate at the speed of relevance. 
giving the tools to the Pentagon to do that. And listen, sometimes it's difficult because uh, folks up here don't want to relinquish control. We understand that, but, but you can't go where we need to go by just making small changes. It has to be, as I said, transformational change. It has to also to provide opportunities to speed up the process. And, and this, this can be done. We, we can do, we can do really hard things and we can do them quickly. Uh, Special operations command does it all the time. Of course, they are in that realm because they are looked at differently. They're looked at differently because the, the threat that they see is of life and limb every day. So the missions that they're on, you know, require that they do things quickly to give them the advantage in an environment that they operate every day that is a matter of life and death. Uh, what we have to do is to take on the same sense of urgency, because in a conflict, all these other areas are indeed going to be that matter of life and death. It may not be immediately today, but it will be if we find ourselves in combat, that will be the case. So we have to change our mindset to be much more like the folks in SOCOM versus uh, the, the folks that are that are there, you know, in the in the middle management in, in the Pentagon. And listen, there are folks there that want to do things differently that are pushing the issues and, and, and willing to take some risk. What we have to do is to make sure that we enable more of that. I, I have some provisions I'm going to put in this year's NDAA that actually create what I call a windshield. Anybody out there should say, hey, I've got a technology that I think is applicable to the military. How do I get it in the hands of soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen? And have them test it and say, hey, does this work? Or if you made these changes to it, it would, it would do an even better job. Uh, how do we do that? And then how do we make sure once that trial period has taken place and you gather the data back from that, how then do we do we make sure that we get that on track to become a capability for the military and not necessarily a program of record and in in a situation, too, where you may not have a requirement, but it's something that is game changing that hasn't even gone through the requirement process. And we have tools there like um other transaction authorities for, for those companies that struggle in the in the phase one and phase two realm and SIBR to, to use uh, the, the, the mid-tier transaction authority. The, the, those things are critically important for us to give the tools necessary to get this technology in the hands of the warfighter to understand what works for them. How, how do we make sure that they can have an input into the decision-making process in ways that are meaningful and ways that really represent the speed of relevance. So I think those are think things that we can do. We're looking specifically at those provisions this year in the NDAA. Sir, on the innovation point, one of the surprises in this budget is the decision to pass on developing a new technology engine for the F-35, the Adaptive Engine Transition Program. Our understanding is that it was one of the very last things cut out when the final passback came from OMB. Now, we would remind listeners that this program is sponsored by GE Aerospace, but the AETP program is competitive. Both GE and Pratt & Whitney have engines using that technology. How do you see the decision to defer that technology until the next generation air dominance program? Well, I, listen, I, I've been very emphatic that our subcommittee, the Tactical Air and Land Forces Subcommittee, is remaining neutral on this. And my ranking member, Donald Norcross, feels the same. So we are, we are staunchly neutral in this. What we have encouraged our members to do is to gather every bit of information about both engines. And we understand some of the discussions that have been brought to us. Uh, and we understand that there could be additional discussions in this year's NDAA. But emphatically, we've been all about remaining neutral in this and, and letting uh, people understand 
the business case analysis that has been done by the joint program office, and then making sure that they spend time with, with both engine manufacturers and make sure they fully understand this issue, as I am sure that uh, they are probably going to be faced with uh, a recommendation on the decision going forward. But the joint, joint program office uh, has made their decision, and we've been specific to stay neutral in this. Sir, I just want to go to uh, Ukraine for a moment, right? Every sure. day we see the vital imperative of speed, uh, how a comparatively small modern war burns through uh, fantastic uh, amounts of uh, ammunition. I mean, we are literally scrounging around in worldwide inventories uh, to be able to uh, give the Ukrainians the weapons they need. Our challenge is not just refilling munition stocks uh, with some existing systems, because you'll need a stinger-like weapon even in the Pacific, but yes. then also develop the next generation of capability. This war has lots of lessons. One of them is you need to have deep, deep magazines, but yes. we also don't have the industrial capacity to produce them. Do we need something like a CHIPS Act on industrial investment where we have to bite a national tens of billions of dollar bullet to sort of think through what this looks like and how to produce stuff in scale at volume when we need to do it, as opposed to saying, well, by 2029, we'll have enough of those weapons, which may be too late. Well, that, that's a great point, Vago. You know, we created the depots across the United States to produce a number of those weapons. So you have an organic capability. And then we we relied upon industry to build the more specialized weapons. And now we're at a point to replenish those magazines where we thought previously that we'd have enough magazine depth. I don't think anybody predicted that we'd have the scale of conflict that we've seen right now. We have to do two things, just as you point out. We have to, we have to, to recapitalize our, our capacity, that is the number of weapons there, even with these older platforms, because we do need something in the interim. We also have to modernize to be able to make sure we put together weapons platforms that have greater range, greater lethality. And we absolutely have to do that. This is a great opportunity to make, to make that happen. And, and it should be a lesson learned that in, in these instances, you know, magazine depth does matter. Uh, we just did a war game yesterday with um, our select committee on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. And one of the things that played big in that was magazine depth when we saw that as we begin to pursue this conflict that our long range weapons magazines went Winchester as the term goes and that is we're depleted uh, in a very, very short order. We have to make sure that we have uh, the magazine depth there. And this is especially on, on long, long range munitions, things like the RASM, the long range anti-ship missile, the, uh, the, the JASM ER, which is the Joint Air to Surface Standoff Missile. And I can go down the list, the, the JSM, the Joint Strike Missile, SM6, all those different platforms that can reach out and hold the Chinese at risk at distance. You know, we need to make sure we have the proper depth there. And we need to make sure we're producing them in the proper ratios. And we can do that in fairly short order. But as you said, we have to increase the production capacity there. Another thing, Vago, that doesn't make the headlines that we need to do is we need to do more at the pace of relevance in energetics. Because where we are right now is we're using circa 1940s technology for our energetics, which is essentially what propels these weapons. That is, it gives them distance. 
Uh, it gives them range, but also lethality. So we want to make sure that we can we can shoot farther and we have more lethality in the weapon. Uh, we haven't done much of that for years. In fact, it's amazing that our adversaries use as a baseline materials that were developed here in the United States. Our adversaries use CL-20 as the baseline for their energetics, which stands for China Lake 20. So we developed that, yet our adversaries are using that as the baseline, we use a much older technology that doesn't have as much range nor as much lethality. If we want to close the gap quickly, it's not just numbers of weapons, it's range and lethality. So I'm going to put some things in this year's NDAA that are going to require current weapons platforms to be quickly modernized with modern energetics to create an office of energetics in the Pentagon to make sure we're aggressively looking at current weapons platforms as well as doing research and development and then converting current weapons platforms so that we can get more out of them. And that's a lot easier than starting new weapons or, or trying to ramp up production of weapons to, to, to produce total numbers when we can do something as simple as modernizing energetics and get a lot more out of our, 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 out of our weapons magazines. Of course, sir, your subcommittee covers tactical air for all the services. We've seen the award of the Army's future long-range assault aircraft project to Bell that's now survived its protest and will move forward. The next piece of Army vertical lift is the future armed reconnaissance aircraft, fitting in somewhere between the Little Bird and the Apache. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot of different indications from the Army, and the difficulties of operating at low altitude in Ukraine are leading some folks to wonder whether any rotorcraft can survive a modern air defense environment. What do you think the prospects are for FARA and whether the Army will go through with it? Well, listen, one of the issues with FARA right now is the engine program, the, the ITEP as it's called, and determining where we are with that particular platform. Uh, the contractor there has had some issues with suppliers to, to get what they need to produce the engines so that it can be tested for FARA, but also it's meant as a service life extension and modernization for Apache and Blackhawk. So those things are incredibly important. That's probably the first step down the road. Uh, what we have to look at too, as you point out, is, is where are we in the Indo-PACOM as it pertains to CONOP for our rotor-winged aircraft? Uh, th those things are incredibly important. And rotary-winged aircraft are going to have a significant impact, I think, in that theater. Uh, but speed makes a difference. The ability to operate at altitude makes a difference, especially with the, as it relates to other weapons platforms. So I, I, I want to make sure that we are doing everything possible uh, in determining where the program is. The program has been moved out, as we heard yesterday from, uh, from Secretary Bush from, from the Army, is the program is, has moved to the right, I think, by eight months or more based upon delays in the, in the engine being delivered. That gives us time to look at this and make sure that the requirements are right on this. Uh, there's been some suggestion too that there should have been some look maybe prior to where we are now on some of the operational aspects of the aircraft. Uh, and it was described yesterday that uh, the Army believes that they've done their due diligence on that. But you, you have to make sure before you make a final decision that you have the full scope of what the needs are for this aircraft to make sure, as you said, that it's fulfilling uh, the proper niche on mission accomplishment to make sure it can perform the con ops within 
the O plans that we have, that is the operations plans that we have in the Indo Paycom. So uh, this this does does give us a little bit of a window to make sure that we're getting this right. I, I want to uh, take you to the question of getting right. Uh, several very large uh, programs we have ongoing uh, at the same time. The Air Force some years ago started the Next Generation Air Dominance Program. The Navy started the FAXX effort. The Air Force then launched the Collaborative Combat Aircraft. I guess, you know, nobody wants to repeat the mistakes of the F-35 program, the Joint Strike Fighter, where we were using one airplane in three different versions and ended up not getting quite as much commonality as we wanted. It looked like everybody was going to go do their own thing. Now it looks like, and we heard in your uh, inaugural hearing, uh, sir, that there's actually going to be cooperation between the Navy and the Air Force, not just between NGAD and FAXX, but also on collaborative combat aircraft. What are the things that the committee uh, and you want to see happen? And what is it that you guys can do to help the services satisfy their needs, get it right, reduce redundancy, increase efficiency, but most important, drive well, speed. We, well, we, we can encourage even greater efforts to work together between the two service branches by making sure that the funding comes to them in that form. So it's not X number of dollars for the Air Force, X number of dollars for the Navy, but to say, you know, this is a joint effort and, and you don't necessarily have to do it through the joint program office, but you could do something similar to that to make sure that there's commonality of purpose there. And then if they go through the development process and say, hey, listen, there really is such a different mission set for both service branches that we're going to have to go in different directions. At least there's some utility in base technology that you develop in that exploration process. So I think that's what we have to do is to say, how do we how do we create economies and efficiencies by assuring that these service branches are working together as they develop these aircraft and as they're they're going forward? An another element too is to is to look at the full scope of what's happening going forward. And when I say the full scope, it means looking at existing technology or existing platforms that are out there instead of saying we've got to create something new. And a great example is the CCA component, the Collaborative Combat Aircraft component of NGAD. Uh, if you look at that, that's a family of systems. I argue that actually the unmanned component of that is even more important than the manned component, which is the, 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 the manned aircraft itself. And we ought to look at what's already there. We ought to look at things like loyal wingmen that's being done by the Australians. We ought to look at Valkyrie, which the Air Force has been looking at and has an incredible amount of capability. I, I think those things are incredibly important. We don't have time to have to reinvent the wheel, especially when there's something out there that holds a tremendous amount of potential. And we actually want these things to be simple in their operating platform, but capable of multi-missions. We, we want to make sure too that they can, you know, that, that they can operate in different domains, we want to make sure, too, that we can operate in areas where we know that we can at least have some advantage across the spectrum. Now, these aren't going to be ELO aircraft or even, for that matter, necessarily LO aircraft, but there are opportunities we can do other things to make sure they can operate in ways that make the risk calculus for the Chinese even more complex. So, I mean, and we can make those we can make those advancements immediately. I mean, these are existing platforms. So, those are the things that we need to do. Those are the things that Congress can can direct the service branches to do, uh, making sure that we we find economies 
to go forward. I think the the Air Force and the Navy are saying, and the Navy especially has said, hey, listen, we don't need to reinvent the wheel because the, the technology being developed in NGAD is applicable to whatever platform the Navy puts out there. You know, and, and the Navy looks at it and says, well, a little bit, you know, different considerations on our aircraft. Obviously, short takeoff and landing, tail hook, those kinds of things. Uh, but but fairly minor as it relates to the overall technology development for the aircraft. So I, I think those are the things Congress can do. Finally, sir, the Air Force is broadly retooling. They're redoing tankers, fighters, bombers, starting to look at command and control aircraft and cargo aircraft all at the same time. Tidewater, Virginia is the home of the Navy. Naval aviation is famously short-legged, and right now their main plan is FAXX, and we're not seeing a lot else for the future of naval aviation. Do they need to look at it broadly and create a plan similar to what the Air Force is doing? And how do you factor in the need for increased range on all of our platforms? Well, they, I, I think the Navy has done some of that. And, you know, they still have a strike fighter shortfall. So we're working to make sure that they that they fill that gap with the 20 aircraft that have been previously uh, approved, make sure they get the contract going forward, forward with Boeing. There's still other things that they need to do. MQ-25 is an important platform there to make sure that they can tank and extend the range so that so they can have more standoff with, with aircraft carriers. I think there's a lot of things that you could do with MQ-25. Again, an existing platform. I don't think it should necessarily just be limited to tanking now. I think it could be a great ISR platform. And for that matter, it's a platform, too, that has some capability, if you wanted to, to be able to put put some weapons on it. So, again, another addition to other platforms that are out there that gives Navy a, a lot more flexibility in how they address these issues going forward. Uh, the, the, the Navy is going to have to, you know, look at uh, different operational elements. And it's not just the aircraft that they have. They, they have, you know, a fourth generation fighter. And even with the newest Super Hornets, you maybe say a 4.25, they say a 4.5 gen fighter, still, still pretty capable. But the question is, is now how do you enable that aircraft to operate in environments that, that they can be held at risk at much greater distances or, as the term goes, get outsticked by, by enemy aircraft? I still think that there are thing, things that we can do within that realm. You have to think creatively there until we can get to a point of you know, the next generation air defense and get. And the Navy's investing in that. The Navy's a little bit behind where the Air Force is. But they are, they are benefiting from all the research and development the Air Force has done. Uh, I, I think what the Navy has to do is aggressively look at how they use a variety of different unmanned systems and especially smaller systems that are less expensive that you can do at scale, that you can take you know, uh, um, the amount of money that we spend now on fighter aircraft, or I should say a small percentage of that, and put it into these attributable unmanned platforms and have them out there as as that as that capability. I, I think that's in, incredibly important. I think it's something that the Navy is looking at, and actually can can have an impact uh, in in the very near term, and then integrate that into what their long term strategy is uh, within the Indo PACOM. To that answer, right? I mean, there is a lot of debate in Washington uh, about you know the windows are: is it two years? Is it five years? Is it is it ten years? The equal debate that's ongoing 
is whether the services are actually on the right track, right? We're, we talk about agile combat employment, but there is a concern that in a hypersonic area denial environment uh, where your adversary has huge and very deep magazines with, you know, and we've seen a lot of capability that uh, the Chinese are demonstrating, for example, Mach 3, uh, surveillance drones, indeed, some of these um, UAVs that we've, you know, these unidentified flying objects we've been seeing may not have been alien, they may have been in Chinese origin over our fleet concentrations and, and what have you. In your view, I mean, do we fully understand the threat? And are we doing the things that we actually need to be doing at the speed we need to be doing them to maintain deterrence? Well, Vago, I do think that we are properly uh, estimating the threat. And again, it's an estimate. It's getting all of our intelligence and, and tr- giving our best guess about what the capability and capacity of the adversary are. And I think we're very realistic about where we are with that. In fact, I think if there is a, if there is a tendency, it is towards uh, making sure that we are the most pessimistic about what capabilities are there. That is, we overestimate what their capabilities are. Uh, and then if we do find ourselves in conflict, I'd much rather be in a situation of overestimating rather than underestimating. So I think, I think there's a tendency to make sure that we are very realistic. And if anything, we err on the side of, of the plus side, not the negative side of what capability is from, from, from the Chinese. Secondly is, you know, are we pursuing the right efforts in order to get where we need to be? I would say we are beginning that effort in a more meaningful way. What I think is necessary today is a sense of urgency from the Pentagon. And I have not seen that yet. I have not seen uh, Secretary Austin or General Milley really express this as the threat of our lifetime to really make this an all hands on deck call, because I do think that we are at that moment. I understand not wanting to alarm people, you know, where people go, oh, my gosh, the end of the world's going to occur tomorrow. But I think Americans are up for the military being very direct with them, very blunt with them as to the magnitude of the threat and then what the United States is going to need to do, because this is going to be an an all of nation effort. It's not just the strategic threats that China faces. This is different than the first Cold War. This is a threat at every level. It is a threat, the economic level. It's a threat in, in, within the social fabric of our nation. It's a threat strategically, not only overseas in Indo-PACOM and other areas, but also now we see here uh, on, our, on our own shores with the flight of the Chinese spy balloon. So I, I think we have to be very, very forthright with the American people about not only what is the scope of the threat, but what is it going to take for us to overcome that threat? Because, I, listen, I give the American people credit. I think they're very very thoughtful and intuitive. I think, I think they get it. I think the more information we give them, the easier it is for them to define in their mind what the threat is. And then there has to be an ask. We have to tell the American people, this is what we will have to do in order to be successful against the Chinese threat. And I think if you ask people, I, I think that they're going to answer the call. So I, I think that's, that's where we are today in having to do more to express the threat express a higher sense of urgency, much higher sense of urgency, and then demand that, you know, our decision makers uh, address the threat head on. The Commonwealth of Virginia has a long history of defense leadership in the Congress. 
Representative Rob Whitman, now chairman of the Tactical Air and Land Forces Subcommittee in the House, is continuing that. And sir, we would be delighted to have this conversation for just as long as you have any time you want to have it. Welcome back anytime. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. JJ, thank you. And sir, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on. Vago, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the opportunity. Call us again. We're glad, glad to come back on. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.